Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are joined by Derek Morin, who, get this, in under two years, 10x'd the value of his company, Tabernap, before selling it in November of 2022. But before I tell you a little bit more about Derek, I want you to hear from today's sponsor of the show, Scribe Media. You know, there's an old expression that the best businesses are bought, not sold. Meaning, when an acquirer approaches you, you're in the catbird seat, right? You've got negotiating leverage because they're coming to you. The question is, how do they find you? Well, acquirers typically target an industry. They're either rolling up an industry or have a specific need in a specific sector. And so they quickly search for who the leaders are in that industry. And if you've written the book on your industry, you bubble quickly to the surface. Now, what if you don't have time to write a book or maybe you're not just a writer? That's where Scribe Media can help. Scribe Media is the book publishing company responsible for bringing the visions of entrepreneurs like David Goggins, Nikki Barua, and Robert Glazier to life. And this is a strategy our own guests at Built to Sell Radio have pursued. You may recall James Ashford was episode 335. He's the guy behind the company Go Proposal. Now, he wanted to get known as a thought leader in the accounting industry. And so we wrote a book called Selling to Serve. And it was a few months later that one of the giants in the accounting industry, Sage, noticed the book, noticed James's company, and made him a healthy eight-figure acquisition offer. Look, writing a book can put your company on the map, and you get bonus points from me if you co-write it with your second-in-command, your general manager, so that some of the brand buzz and equity accrues to your 2IC or your general manager, making sure your business doesn't come too dependent on you personally. Now, you may be saying, well, well, I'm not a writer, nor is my second in command for that matter. Well, no problem. Scribe Media lets you speak your book and then they will write it for you in your voice. Let me say that again. They will write it for you. When it's time to sell your business, buyers will know exactly who you are, what you stand for, and the legacy they'll inherit from the company you've built. Visit scribemedia.com and book your free consultation today. You know, funny enough, in doing my research for today's episode with Derek, I actually found a book that he wrote back in 2015 called Shortcuts to Success and Happiness. And I actually went through this and I think you'll find it interesting. So I have linked Derek's book in the show notes section, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Derek, who in 2016 founded Tabernap to create aftermarket sales applications for Shopify website owners. Crazy enough, the first app he created was such a hit with Shopify owners, they were able to generate over a thousand paid users in less than three months. But as you're listening to today's episode, there are a few things I want you to look out for. Number one is how he identified unique opportunities within his market, how Derek chose the right pricing model for his company, how you can utilize a clever accounting strategy to increase the value of your business, 
how to incite a bidding war for your company, and how to negotiate beneficial terms with an acquirer. Here to share with you the full story of how he sold his company Tabernap in 2022 is Derek Morin. Enjoy. Derek Morin, welcome to Build to Sell Radio. Hey, thank you, John. Thank you for having me. Take me back to 2012 when you were designing websites for customers. What was that experience like? What were you doing? Uh, well, I started in 2012, something really small. I, I was in a coffee shop. like uh, I was listening to conversa- conversation around. There was a, a mortgage broker uh, on the phone uh, asking, like, uh, I need to send a newsletter. And I was like, oh, man, I, I could do that. I, I know MailChimp. It's pretty easy. I could you know, build the list, send, build a design and, and send it. And then she, we, we sat down. I mean, I sat down with her and I left the coffee shop with actually a business that I didn't know I had before I entered the coffee shop. <laughs> so this is how it started. Oh, fine. Um, and then we, I started to build like website with WordPress and everything and, you know, gaining some clients there and, and there, uh, which is kind of a similar story that you, uh, that you have in your book, Build to Sell. Uh, I didn't know exactly what business I was in. I was just chasing down clients, you know, trying to make money. Uh, I was still young at that point. I had like uh, 24 years old, just out of university. Uh, but yeah, this is how it started. And where did it go from there? How did it evolve? Because you went through a pretty big change in business model. Describe that. Yeah. Uh, well, from 2012 to 2016, I would say... Uh, what retrospective, if I look at it, I, I would say I was going nowhere. Like uh, we, we were making some money, trying to invest in some projects, but you know there was nothing solid, no vision. Uh, in 2016, I got into a small incubator called, well, it's not that small, called Founder Institute. It's worldwide, actually. Uh, but I got there with an idea that when we accepted this incubator, I tried and it failed. But I, what the, 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 the learning that I got from this experience, it taught me like to really build a product and not to sell services and to try to productize a service uh, with, you know, like you describe in your book, build to sell with a step-by-step uh, way to reproduce it without yourself. So what was it about, what was it about? a service business they were trying to have you avoid at this incubator? Like, why were they telling you to to have a product or a productized service? What was their rationale for that? I think uh, I would say two main reasons, uh, but it's a really good question. First of all, a service business for them is less fundable. I mean, they cannot. And, and second of all, it's less growable. I, I mean, the growth potential is less there because it relies on human and on time and and on services that someone, a human being, I think soon enough it's going to be AI, but a human being would perform. So for them, I would say growth and the, the, the factor of being able to be funded with their money, I think that's where why they, they push on, on products. But they also said every good product, at least at the beginning, has a service attached to it. And a lot of big businesses has a, you know, a small or medium or a large part of their revenue coming from services. Um, but for them, the key, like everything that they taught us was to try to build a product that can scale, that can scale like without you involving, involving the daily operations. And that's what I, 
what, what made me click that I need to build something like that. I didn't know what at the time, but I needed to build something like that. And your first product was a failure? Describe that. Yeah, the first product was, uh, I, I really liked the e-commerce uh, industry because I felt at like end 2015, I felt it was ready to, to boom. I think I was right uh, at this point, like if you judge now. Um, and um, I tried something, was kind of a social commerce platform. Um, so basically the main idea was that um, when people are shopping, it transformed the selfish experience of buying into something more collective. So for example, if you, John, you go there, you click to share on Facebook, it will modify the price for everyone else seeing that product in real time. So like, so the pricing was affected by the behavior of the people, the traffic, uh, like who, for example, if you buy this, it goes up by $1. If you share this, it goes up by 50 cents. You know, it was, hmm. we were trying some experiments at this time. Um, and we had the technology that allowed us to do that. It was young at, at, at that point. Uh, but yeah, this is something I think it was too ambitious. I would say we were trying to compete against Shopify, for example. <laughs> so, so it failed. We didn't have money yet. And, and yeah, that, that was the experience. And Derek, who's the we? Uh, I say we because at that point we were four people. Uh, but we were two people more involved in, in the operation and the idea generation and all the, how many equity holders, just you, Derek, or was, was at, there, at this point, uh, because it's kind of vague in my memory, we were four people, two from Canada, two from Romania. Um, and like quite soon, like quite, I would say a month or two after we launched this experiment that failed. Uh, one of the partner, uh, his name is Andu. He, he left and um, he, he decided to join another company and do something else. But at that point, from 2012 to 2015 and 16, and be, beginning of 16, my partner and I, Hugo, and another Canadian, uh, we invested in Romania in a company there called Call My World that was operated by Endu and Bogdan. So we were kind of four people involved in this new experiment that we, we, we tried. It was called Walsh. Uh, but before that, we, 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 we met those people online and we decided to actually invest money in their Romanian company there just to be the developer and, and produce this, this new platform. Yeah. Okay. So you and Hugo own the business that Andu leaves didn't work and you guys are still together. Is Hugo, like, are you continuing to do work, web design and, and web development for clients as, as need be, or have you yeah. totally shut that down? Yeah. Yeah. At that point we were, we needed money to, to live. So yeah, we were continuing and Bogdan also had some shares in, in our company. So we were kind of three people at this point. And uh, of course, like our real job was to build website ap application software and stuff like that. We were not committed, especially because we had some failures in this project, this social experiment was another failure. So we were convinced that we needed to build a product, but we had so many troubles building one that we were like, okay, the easy path is to continue serving people with services. Yeah. 
Yeah. I talked to a lot of people who have had a similar trajectory in the sense that the allure of a product business is very tempting. They have a service company, they go for the product business, it fails, and they kind of go back into the the warm embrace of the (laughs) service industry where they have clients and they have, you know, they can change everything for everyone that they do. And there's no need to really kind of, and it's, um, it ends, the story ends there for a lot of people. In other words, they stay with the service business that, and they, and they kind of never make another run at it. But in your case, you did the opposite. You licked your wounds, it sounds like, and then did launch yeah. what ultimately became a successful product. Maybe describe why you thought, like, what was it that made you confident you could win, even though your first product was a failure? I was not. I was not confident, to be honest. And I think that's the lesson. I'm a. I think I like risk. I'm. I, I would describe myself as a as a gambler. I would say, and I really like to build stuff. And especially Bogdan and I, we were builders, and we just like projects. And I think that's one of the reason why the service business was going bad as well, because we like so much building stuff that we kind of neglected the service business. But on the other end, we were kind of addicted to the revenue stream that provides the services. So I think you described it well. We were kind of stuck in this business, but like our hearts were into building a product or building stuff. So, um, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. So what happens next? Next, in um, summer 2016... I hear myself in the background, so that's why I have some issues <laughs> to, to concentrate. Uh, so in t- 2016, we launched a Shopify app. Um, it was August 2016, yeah, the 4th. Uh, I know the date because I checked when it was approved by Shopify yesterday so to, be, to be sure that. Uh, we launched an app, and I, 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 would, I would like to explain how we came up with this idea because I think the audience will, will, will appreciate that. Um, so what we did, Bogdan and I mainly, Hugo was still operating the services and managing the clients. So he had the boring job. So Bogdan and I, we sat down, he was in Montreal with me, uh, and we checked what are the, you know, next big industries or the industry that are quite big now, but they will still grow. And more specifically, we check what are the platforms that we could just build like a plugin or an extension or a widget. That, and because we're, or one of our weakness was marketing and sales. So we needed something that sells by itself. And within the platform, we were like, okay, I think that's the best bet for us to focus on building products and someone else or something else, the platform will make the sales for us. So we came down to the conclusion that there were two platforms. Salesforce and Shopify. So we either we either will would build a plugin for Salesforce or for Shopify. Uh, so we began just reading the complaints within the forums of Salesforce and within the forums of Shopify. We checked who are the merchants in case of Shopify because I remember more Shopify because this is what we ended up building. So we checked uh, the merchants, the developers, what were the complaints. Uh, we kind of just did a spreadsheet. We were counting the number of times each topic was repeating. And -hmm. then we went into it and we went, okay, so we have like the quantitative analysis. Let's go with the qualitative analysis and 
how painful each of this is. And the discounting, everything around promotions within Shopify was according to us, what was the most painful for, for the merchants and even for the developers as well. So this is- Interesting. What, so, yeah. so you went on to forums, um, like Reddit forums and, and those kinds of forums. Uh, like what, what, what sorts of forums were you looking yeah. at? Well, specifically for Shopify, there's something called uh, community uh, forums, like shopify.community, or I don't remember the URL. Uh, okay. But if you Google like community forum Shopify, it's the first result. And you'll see like, this is something that they've built. It's open to the public and they actually manage most of their tickets or a lot of tickets uh, publicly open to everyone. So everyone can Got benefit it. from the answer from the question of other people. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're scrolling through yeah. all of the verbatim commentary and you're categorizing them. And one category that seems to be prevalent and popping up regularly yeah. is how to handle promotions and discounts. If I have a Shopify store, yeah. that seemed to be a, a, a frustration for a lot of Shopify users. Is that right? Exactly. And, and that was the part of the quantitative. We were just counting. And then when you start to read and you see like exclamation mark, exclamation mark, uppercase, uh, why is a uh, big commerce doing that? Why is a uh, uh, WooCommerce or WordPress doing that and not Shopify? I cannot believe I pay for this. You know, you can feel the pain. And this is where it started. Yeah. Interesting. And so you identified the kernel of this product idea through the forums. And what ended up being the product that you developed? What was it called? What did it do? Well, we still add in, in mind the social experiment that we wanted to build. So we were like, okay, let's say instead of building a platform and being a competitor to Shopify, let's say we build it inside Shopify. So the same logic of what I explained before with the pricing affected by the behavior and the actions of the users. But to do so, we needed three like kind of parts. And the first part was to be able to automate the application of a discount. And it, this alone was not possible. And when we started mm. to look for it, like, why is it not possible? Then we saw an even bigger pain than we saw before. Like people were really, really, really mad. Like, <laughs> so we sat down, Bogdan and I, I think it took three weeks to build the first version of the app, the MVP. This is the version that we actually submitted to Shopify. And that was only it. It was a way to generate a link that will apply a discount, which sounds like really stupid when we, I mean, when I say this aloud, now I'm like, this is so obvious. But at this time in Shopify, it was not possible to do that. So this is what we, we, we did. It was just a link generator that has a, a, a coupon or a discount attached to it. And Shopify approved the app and, and you yeah. were off and running when this well we launched in august new feature. yeah exactly uh sorry to interrupt but we launched in in, in august uh beginning of august it was approved by shopify so it was built like three to four weeks before that uh in within the first three to four months we got a thousand customers paying for that yeah. wow what do they pay for three or four dollars per month it was 3.99 the first pricing but at, at this Got time, it. honestly, John, we were pricing based on like, it's so obvious and so simple. It should not be worth a lot. We were not pricing on based on the pain or the willingness to pay for something, which was a mistake that we realized later. But at this time it was like, it's so simple and it only took us three weeks to build. Well, people will not be willing to pay for that. 
which was a mistake. But why do you say why do you say it was a mistake? What did you come to learn about pricing? Well, we came to learn that we can increase it a lot based on what is the value perceived by the customer or the time that they save or the, the actions that they can make with it, and not based on how much does it cost for a server, how much does it cost for employees and stuff like that. So it was more like a value-based pricing rather than a cost-based pricing. So how did how much did you increase the price to? Like what does it sell for today? Uh, today, people, I, I saw someone done <laughs> during Black Friday who paid like $12,000 for a month. <laughs> Sorry, $12,000 per month well, for this product? For this specific, yeah, for, for Black Friday, we were, we, we, we uh, like almost a year ago uh, in April uh, last year, uh, I'm not sure where, when this recording will be launched, but uh, so in April 2021, we decided to switch from a monthly fee to a fee, uh, a percentage of the sales that come from our app. So if you're making a sell that use our app to create the promotion, then you're paying uh, like within 0.6 to 2.9%, uh, depending on the you plan. Mean, the credit card model. Where yeah, exactly. Kind of a, yeah, a We call it a success fee, but it's more like a conversion fee if the promotion sells, but it's free if you don't make any sell with, with, with the app. So we and, saw, and so you saw somebody selling a product for twelve grand. Not a product, but we saw commissions like the success fee that we made. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was a bit more than twelve thousand dollar. Wow! So we went from four dollar per month to twelve thousand dollars. So, so <laughs> that's a big. Well, that's that's, big that's the edge case, I would say. Yeah. But you know, uh, yeah, it was. I mean, we would have never dreamed of someone paying more than like $100 per month. Like even 100 was like 25 times more than four, right? So, yeah. I mean, I would $100 a month be pretty typical of what you would get for, from a customer today using this new model? Uh, well, before we reached this model, we tried everything. Uh, I don't think that would be a good strategy uh, in a big corporation. Like, let's say... For example, when Netflix raised by $1, everyone screamed, oh, it's too much. <laughs> we were trying different models. We tried like uh, the we tried a model based on the monthly, but also based on the Shopify plan that the people are having. So for example, if you are on a Shopify Plus, let's say you pay $2,000 per month to be on Shopify Plus, you most likely have more sales and more traffic. So it costs us more to serve you. Uh, and for those people we were charging, I mean, it went from uh, 39 49 uh, up to $99 before we changed uh, the, the pricing model. Yeah, so it was $99 for the top stores uh, when we decided to change the pricing model. And what went into the decision to, to change to a, a transaction fee or a success fee? We uh, built analytics uh, at the end of 2021. And we were actually, uh, the years before that, we were always uh, staying all weekend long during Black Friday and Cyber Monday weekend. Uh, so it's Thanksgiving in US. Um, and we were seeing the number of times our script were, uh, were called and the number of discounts and promotions and everything. And at some point I told, uh, or Bogdan told me, uh, because at, at this time we were only Bogdan and I, we can come back to it later, but uh, Bogdan told me, man, if we were just charging like a dollar or 0.5% or something ridiculous, we would make within a weekend, like a quarter of all the year. So we're, I mean, 
it's hard to sleep after that, knowing that you can do that and not doing that. <laughs> so that's why we mm -hmm. decided to change. And the analytics after that we built proved that. So it proved that we will make less money on, um, on the people that will not pay because a lot of people were installing the app, keeping it, either making one or two or three sales or not, or just, you know, they, they, they set up the promotion. They're afraid that if they, they uninstall the app, all their settings are lost. So they keep the app. Or sometimes they actually forget the app exists. Let's say it would cost like $4. I mean, I think that's the business model of all the subscription business that we have, like mm -hmm. Spotify or Netflix or whatever. So, um, yeah. So, I, I, but, but when we saw the analytics, we were like, okay, maybe we will charge less people in terms of number of people, but the people that we charge and the people that benefit from the, from the benefits of the app will, will pay more. And well, we actually tested up to how much they're willing to pay and it was hard to, to know, but, uh, I think it was based on the number of complaints we get, like when you're decreased. <laughs> That yeah. seems like a giant bet, the company decision. Yeah. In the sense that you have this install base of people paying you on a regular basis for the application on a monthly basis, like a SaaS model. And then to move to a transaction model, that feels like a giant. You're bet. right. You're right. But I, I didn't mention, and I should mention, all the people that were installed before we made the move stayed on the monthly. Ah, okay. So the, it was a lot res less risky because we didn't force the people to upgrade to the, to the, to, to the new business model, to the new pricing. But all the new users that were installing, or let's say, John, you have the app on day one. On day two, we uh, make the, this new change of new pricing. If you uninstall after and you reinstall, then you pay the new pricing model. I see. So it was also a way for us to kind of reduce the churn of existing users because, you know, they were, they would be aware that the pricing would change if they uninstalled. And it was also a way to minimize the risk because we were testing only on the new users. Yeah. That's super helpful. You alluded to the fact that it was just you and Bogdan at this time. What right. happened to Hugo? Uh, we, we decided to uh, buy back uh, his shares. I actually bought, bought back uh, his shares in 2020. Yeah, in September 2020. And so I'd be curious to know how you valued the company at that point. So September 2020, maybe describe sort of whatever you can about revenue. Like where were you on, the, on, a, on a revenue, annual recurring revenue or profit? Yeah. Or I'd be curious to know how you value the company. Uh, in September 2020, <laughs> curiously, we were still making some services. I mean, it's hard for me to even say it. Like we knew the, the other app was booming, but for some reasons, uh, like having Hugo, uh, but, but not only that, but we actually needed to have some tasks for him. So we kept the services client, but it was really distracting and we lost focus with it. So that's one of the main reasons why I decided to purchase back his shares and to shut down the service business completely. Um, and did did you value the company based on like, I mean, so you had, so you had two, two forms of revenue. You had the services revenue. Yeah. Um, and then you, you had the application revenue. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'd be just curious to know how much revenue you had from each side of the business right, right, right. and then how you went about valuing it. At this point, we had more revenues uh, with the product, with the Shopify apps. Um, 
but at this point we were breaking even like profit wise on the product or the on, on, or on, well on everything because we okay. we were we I'm not sure what we were doing with the money but Hugo was in charge of bookkeeping and all you know money wise and client wise and everything and I actually didn't know exactly where the money was going and that's the other reason why I wanted to actually be accountable and you know take responsibility for it but to so answer ballpark, how much yeah. revenue were you generating if you combine the two we were we were around uh, seven hundred thousand Canadian, so would be Got like five hundred fifty US or something like that. Five hundred, yeah. yeah. Okay, so you're you're around seven hundred thousand Canadian, um, which is a mixture of product and service. Yeah, but I think we were and, down like twelve thousand, uh, like net. No, on the net profit was a, a net loss of twelve thousand or something like that. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And Derek, are you paying yourselves out of the business? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, it so was your salary, our salary. Yeah, Hugo yeah. salary. Yeah, and, and salary. I think we paid ourselves pretty good. Uh, I think it was at that time something within like sixty thousand or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're paying yourself. Uh, you break even, and then how did you figure out how much to buy Hugo out for? Like, how did you value the company for the purposes of the bio? Um. Well, it was also mainly it was a discussion between him and I. Uh, we we're still friends and we we're still in good uh, relationship. Um, he asked for a mo- uh, he asked for an amount. I, you know, I said I'll, I'll give you this, and then we had a discussion. But basically, I knew the growth potential, and I knew I would be a lot more motivated now that I own more shares, and also now that Bogdan owns more share because I, afterwards I, I sold a bit of shares to him. Uh, so I knew both of us would be more motivated and more focused. So, you know, long story short, I gave pretty much what he asked for. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it, yeah, it was and, not and a lot, but uh, it was for him. Do you mind sharing what, what it was and how you? Um, yeah, the company has some, had, had some debt, uh, that, but, but the money that uh, came out of my pocket with a loan as well, because I, I was broke. <laughs> It was uh, around 150,000 Canadian plus. Okay. I think he got like a bit less than $200,000. Yeah, Canadian. Got it. So, so that, so how did you value the 700 grand? Like, did you, did you, like, I guess my question is how much of the business did he own? Were, how many, what proportion of the business were you buying out effectively? Uh, I was buying uh, 25%, a bit less than 25, 24, I think. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So, He's placing the value of the company around something in the kind of eight hundred, nine hundred thousand. dollars Well, the company was more valued uh, to answer your question directly because of the product in the Shopify app. Uh, so this is what the value came for from because the other part, I mean, no matter how you win uh, or, or not win, but no matter how you earn top line, if the bottom line is negative, well, it, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's worth nothing, uh, at least according to our accountants. Yeah, yeah, and so you took over the accounting, yeah, and and what did you learn about the numbers based on digging into the the kind of accounting stuff? Well, first of all, I had to uh, upgrade to a real accounting system because we were using spreadsheet, and I think uh, maybe it's the karma, but I think when you use spreadsheet, uh, 
and you color everything with columns and then colors and pink and blue and yellow, it feels like the money is not attracted to it. <laughs> so it's like you're jinxing yourself because you're not using something real. To, to, <laughs> the money likes to be structured and to have a nice system. And this is what I did first to migrate everything from spreadsheet for the years before and to, to, to use, a, uh, we use something called wave accounting. Yeah. Wave accounting. Yeah. I heard of yeah, that yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you're into wave and, 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 and what did you like? Uh, I, I remember seeing some notes, you know, pre-interview notes from our producer that you, you developed an acronym called pure. Yeah. Maybe describe what that acronym was and, and how you used it. Yeah, sure. Oh, so basically uh, when you export the profit and loss every month, I was doing this. So it's, kind of rows and columns. I mean, you can see like all the revenues, all the expenses. So next to each expense and or and revenue, I was writing a letter or a symbol. Uh, each letter is P-U-R-E, was the action that I wanted to make for the next month or for the next period. Uh, for example, uh, when I saw uh, Shopify app, the revenue was growing. So I was writing a P or a plus because I want more of that because this is profitable. So the P was for profitable. When I was uh, seeing uh, something like the services or a client in particular in the list, uh, I was writing, for example, U for unnecessary. Or So this is something that I want less. Uh, the R was something that I can replace. Usually it was uh, some expenses uh, or people uh, that, that I saw that, you know, I gave to him $15,000. I could maybe hire someone cheaper or someone better or I, I pay my phone uh, 75 bucks and I could add something at 50 bucks instead. So R was something that is replaceable. And the E is for equal. That means that I expect the next month to be quite the same. So there are expenses like uh, life insurance or stuff that will be like servers. Uh, but even the servers, we were digging into it and say, okay, how can we pay less of CDN? Uh, or how can we pay less of this tool or that tool? And yeah, this is what... It was, it was like my own personal game that I was playing with myself to achieve the highest, uh, you know, net margin as possible. Love it, yeah, and and it it's a nice little acronym. So pure uh, things plus unnecessary replace or equal. Yeah, well, it was plus minus. Um, um, no, it was plus X to 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 you know to to delete it unnecessary minus to replace or to add less to reduce or replace. And equal, uh, well, the equal sign just to, so I was just, yeah, sorry. So when, when you took over the bookkeeping, you guys were break even. What impact did you doing the bookkeeping and using this pure system have on your profitability going forward? Like how did your profitability change? Well, I realized um, when I was, um, there was the first task I did with the bookkeeping was to, uh, to elaborate more or and i don't know the english word for it but to actually see more of each of the expenses or the revenue subdivise like because the the way the hugo and the uh, the accountant build it it was like all of our expenses were into one or two groups like uh, mm -hmm. web design but what is what is that i mean i don't know where the money is going and all the revenues were in uh, like uh, revenues or like it's as global as this so i wanted to have something more narrow and, and I wanted to actually see every group uh, in, in more detail. So when I did that, I realized that, well, it's clear that the money is coming from one single app, which was like 
92% of our revenue. <laughs> and that might be confusing for people because at this point, you had broadened from just the pricing application on Shopify. You had launched some additional applications. Is that right? Exactly. Uh, well, that was, uh, in my opinion, uh, well, when I look at it, it was a, another mistake that we made. We were trying to de-risk the business uh, instead of focusing on the app that actually boomed in 2016 and 17, and then it plateaued. And then we were like, okay, it plateaued. Well, we should maybe build other apps. So in 2017 and 18, we built one, two, three. We came down to having six apps in total. Uh, only two of them were really making money, and one of them was really making money compared to them. But I think it's, I think it's now that I know a bit more about investing in, in business, I think it was to be expected. Um, but yeah, we came down to six apps. Yeah. So you had six apps, but when you got into the accounting, you realized that 92% of your revenue was coming from just one of those apps. Yeah. Well, well the day we sold, I checked like the revenue. Uh, so this is more fast forward in 2022 when we sold uh, like a month and a half ago, uh, more than 90% of the revenues were, were from one app. Yeah. Wow. And so what else did you do as you got into the accounting? You saw that 90% of your revenue is coming from one app. What else... What else did scrutinizing your accounting using this pure acronym do? Yeah. Like what other changes happen? Well, it was now easier and clearer. Like the, the big picture was clearer for me that, uh, for example, this application uh, relies on this person, but this application is not making more. So I could let go this person and was like just looking at it. And every month I was... Every day I was trying to do one simple task, one action that would help my pure uh, business. Uh, and every month I was checking in like the, the month prior and I was like, did I do the task that I said to myself I would do? And I was kind of punishing me if I didn't. <laughs> or how, myself and stuff. how profitable did you get this business on a percentage basis before selling? Uh, according to Wave Accounting, it was 82% net profit margin, including our seller. Wow. But according to the broker that built, you know, the PDF document that was sent to it, because he, he was using the SDE, and I think you're, you can explain more what it is for the audience that doesn't know. So it's the seller discretionary earnings. So he was excluding our salary, bugged in and eyes, and it was like 94% or something like that. Wow. It, was, it was too high. I was like, man, it's too high. I, I would like to buy myself the business back. So. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, to go from a break even to, like 80, 90% net profit margin is unbelievable. Yeah. It was Even after 80, paying yeah. yourselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So what was the trigger that made you want to sell? Because I think a lot of people listening to this would be like, 90% profit margin is like, hang on to it forever. This is like, yeah, a, right. the, you know, the, the golden goose here. What, like, what made you decide yeah. to sell? One thing was your book, to be honest, <laughs> when I read when I read uh, Build to Sell and The Art of Selling, uh, then I really understood that like most of the money I'm going to make in my life is selling the business. No matter if it's really profitable, let's say uh, I, I was, we were earning 80 cents on, on every dollar, we were gaining top line. Uh, but this also has tax. And in Canada, I think you're still in Canada, you know that tax are high. And in Quebec specifically, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like 52% yeah. of my salary would go to, to. So when I made the calculation based on what I expected as valuation uh, for the sell, uh, it was 
kind of roughly like 25 to 80 uh, to, to 25 to 30 years of salary that I would gain if I sell the company. So yes, I like the fact that it was really a well-tuned and oiled business, you know, a nice cash flow. But on the other side, I was kind of tired to do that. I wanted to do something else. And also I had more to lose, I would say, than to win. Because, you know, if I gain 30 years of salary on the other side, why would I keep the business? So that's, yeah, that's the math we came down to. Yeah, when you when you put it like that in terms of years of salary, it's uh it's uh it's an interesting way to think about it for sure. So what did you do next? I mean, did you hire an advisor, a broker, or did you do it yourself? What was what was the process like? Yeah, um we hired a broker. His name is Atila from IRA Capital. Um and uh so he actually called emails a few times before we decided to jump in. Um, and, um, well, I, I, I agreed to make a first call and then a second call and then a third call, but we were not ready. I think I, I would say I'm pretty much sure that I'm not alone, not being ready to sell because you always want to make a bit more. Okay. We'll wait, we'll wait. The business is going to be better because prior to actually agreeing to go with the broker and listing it for sale, Bugden and I told ourselves, um, let's do 12 nice months, like the 12, you know, most profit month that we can do because the last trailing 12 months will be the period analyzed by any potential buyer. And I didn't know that, but when reading your book and other books, I, I've learned that. So, we, but we were not finished. The, the, the 12 months were not done when we started to say, okay, we're going to list it for sale. So we listed for sale before we were kind of finishing the 12 months, but we were like 10 months in already. So, so we were kind of happy of the performance. And uh, Attila told us, uh, well, the market is going down. And it was like it was uh, uh, mid-summer 2022. Um, and I didn't know that. You know, if the public market goes down, the private market goes down as well. <laughs> so he was saying we should make a move now or, you know, you should actually wait that because the valuation will be much lower than pro- the last year during COVID where valuations were crazy high. Yeah, I, w- I want to get into all that. Before we do, though, um, wh- what stage are you at in terms of revenue at this stage when you're looking to to bring on uh, um a potential advisor, where are you t- kind of top line? Uh, close to uh, a million AR. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And had you, had you any sense of what it could be worth before, you know, testing the market, it sounds like you had done some math to know that it might be 20 or 30 times your salary. So where are you getting that number from? I guess this is my question, like that benchmark. Okay. Um, yeah, I was checking the valuation. Um, I was checking also um, some rules that uh, private equity firms have. Like, for example, they will not buy for more than four times your revenue, your annual recurring revenue. I was also checking other types of business like the, that, that they sell for three, four, five, six times the profits. I was more focused towards the profit because, you know, for us, four times the revenue was like five times the profits if you make the 80% rule. So... So for other businesses, four times the revenue is huge because they don't make any money, uh, bottom line. But for us, it was kind of the same thing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's, you know, I made some research and I saw, but also I was talking to the broker, Attila, who gave me a, 
you know, here's what I think. And in the past, he sold his own business himself. So he knew like, okay, so regardless of the fact that he has a success fee that he's only making money if he sells, I would, you know, do this if it was my business because of these reasons. So he was really a fault in that. Yeah. And what did he think it could be worth? Like, what was, did he give you a multiple of profit or any sense of like a range at all? Or, well, at first he said uh, people would be paying uh, somewhere be, like around three times the revenues. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 That's what he felt that, that, that well, that yeah, he said be. like a few months prior, it would be four, maybe five. But now, you know, uh, at this point, I think the NASDAQ was like 20% down from all time high, uh, like all the talk stock, including Shopify. Well, one of the example, one of the, you know, uh, potential acquirer, uh, he said, well, I could buy Shopify for six times the revenue. Why would I buy your company for six times the revenue? So it was a good argument. <laughs> Like yeah. it's a much safer bet to bet on Shopify, which was down like 70% from all time high. Uh, so, well, I didn't know what to answer. <laughs> except, yeah, well, yeah. I cannot say we're better than Shopify. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of <laughs> listeners are dealing with this right now. Here, we're recording this in the early part of 2023, where almost every industry, you know, technology yes. is taking the biggest hit, obviously, but virtually every industry is down to some extent. And, and I think... A lot of people are saying, well, you know, maybe I'll just ride this out for a year or two, wait till right. the market comes back and, and then sell. You made right. a different decision, though, because you decided to continue on. Maybe walk me through your decision making process that even though the NASDAQ was down 20 percent, you still decided to sell. Well, I would say when you buy, when you sell low, usually you have money and then you can buy low as well because it's like if you buy a house at the top of the market well you won't live in the street for three years waiting for the market to go down so you need to buy another house pretty expensive or too expensive for what it's worth so when i you know realized that it was like okay so i will get less money but the money i have is worth more because everything will be at a discount so that's kind of the bet uh, i told i i i, I took Another reason was um, we're, we were 100% dependent from a platform. And that's one of the reasons why our multiplier was lower. Because we were not in control of our clients. They, they are clients from Shopify, not from us directly. Shopify charged them. So we're not the first point of contact uh, towards the money. Like uh, you're, We're not the people that actually charged them. So Shopify charged them. So the fact that we were dependent on Shopify and the fact that Shopify was uh you know laying off people uh well i asked but then do you believe that shopify will still be there in five ten years i'm not sure you know it goes so fast in, in this world uh also the fact that they are they were make they are often making you know breaking change in the api and all the tools that we're using so they are changing stuff so we always need to to build other stuff. And at this point, we were only two people full-time, Bogdan and I, and another developer part-time. So we didn't have the team if there was a huge change to actually be able to rebuild or to refactor the app. So that, you know, there was a mix of stuff, I would say. Also the family, I have two young kids. And, um, uh, you know, I think it was safe to, you know, to, to, to get my eggs out of the basket. And, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, makes good sense. Yeah, you're referring to something called platform risk that that we talk about on the show quite a bit. Right. Where you know the, the rising tide lifts all boats. It's wonderful when Shopper flies on a trajectory to the moon. Right. Uh, you you get to kind of ride on their coattails equally, though. The more dependent you become on Shopify, the more uh, effectively dependent you are on the the wind exactly. of that platform. So you were 100 exactly. percent Shopify at this point. That was where yes. all of your revenue was coming from. People, people yeah. adding yeah. your application in their store. When we started, I met a guy, uh, uh, Reza his name, from Shoelace, which uh, is a big app in, in Shopify. He told me, well, you can try to build one app across multiple platforms, so to scale horizontally, or you can try to focus on one platform. And he actually told me, you should sh- focus only on Shopify. Because like, even if we're present on other platforms, I think at this point, 80 or 90% of his revenue was from Shopify. So, you know, the fact that you need a lot more developers, if you built on other platforms, it was a, you know, money that we didn't have at this time. So that's why we decided to focus. We knew we were depending on a platform, but I didn't know the real impact of it, especially when you're trying to sell it. Yeah. So the, the, like, let's say I would, I would, uh, let's say I, I would go, for example, hypothetically, you can sell for four times revenue there, but if you're a real SaaS, 100% autonomous, you can sell for 10 times revenue. So that's, you know, yeah, that's a big difference. Yeah. Okay. So your advisor is saying, look, NASDAQ's down, Shopify stock is down. You may have got, you know, you're you're dependent on Shopify. So look, I think three times is probably a pretty good outcome. And and so your reaction to that was, okay, great. I can go shopping for cheap socks with the money. <laughs> let's, <laughs> no. let's, let's, let's make a deal. Yeah. Uh, well, to be honest, I was disappointed uh, by that because we made so much effort. Like I was playing a game with my pure business type of game. But at the end of the day, it was not just a game that I was playing. I was expecting because I made good effort to bring the profits as high as possible to be paid based on that. So when I learned that, well, it doesn't really matter your profit, we're paying based on revenue, I was like, uh, and they're really checking. I think it's really important for the audience to, to well, especially in, in this industry, they're really checking the growth rate and the story that you're selling. So they were checking the revenue, the growth rate, uh, of course the churn, uh, but also the story that you're selling. Like how can we, the new acquirer, you know, bring this to the next level. And this is all, you know, it's part of all the stuff that I learned when, when, when selling. And what was the story you were telling? So let me, let's back up. So you yeah. tried to engage and hire this M&A professional to take you to market. Yeah. What was the story they painted about your business? What was the narrative they chose to sort of tell the marketplace about you guys? Yeah, well, we still had a, a nice growth, especially the main app, because we decided when I, I purchased back Hugo, we decided to focus like for a year and a half, almost two years, only on one app. Not that we ditched the other apps; we actually sold uh, to one of them and, and you know uh, deleted uh, another one. But we still maintained them. But we really focused all the new development on one app. Um, so, how much was it growing at the time of the acquisition on a percentage basis? Ballpark. Uh, it was over 25%. Okay. Yeah. So you got this app. So yeah. part of the narrative is there's an app, uh, it's growing 25% year over year. 
what else was there? but the, but the profit was a lot more growing you know than the revenue but the revenue was around like 15 to 20 percent okay maybe a bit more uh but the number of users because we had switched the business model was not growing so you know when you're selling something the acquirers or potential acquirers will always point you know the weaknesses to try to bring it down the valuation so they were saying okay let's say I, I cannot share exactly the you know the number of users and the revenue because I'm legally binded. But let's say you have 2,000 uh, paid customers last year, and now you have like 2,000 customers again paid. So you have no growth. So they were focusing on stuff like that just to try. But the advisor played a big role, and because he has experience in knowing like, you know what to um, what to counter or what to reply. How to did those. he counter that? Well, he he. he he focused a lot on the new business model, the fact that we need less paid customer to make a lot more money. So that was a, a big part of the, the PDF that he built. It was like 60 pages, uh, really, really nicely done. Uh, so that, I think, was the main counter-argument, the, the fact that also the e-commerce industry was slowing down a bit after COVID that was really, really high. 2022 was, so he blamed it on you know, the sector itself. Mm. But he also said, well, they're, they're having quite the same amount of users. I think we had a bit more, uh, but they're making a lot more money and they proved that it can be run with two people, which was, I mean, at this point, we didn't know, but that's another topic. We didn't know if we needed to staff up a bit, you know, to transfer the knowledge and the people and everything. But at that point, we wanted to prove that it could almost run like with, well, not, not almost. It could run with two people and even with one people if this person is pretty good. Yeah. Excellent. And so what was the reaction of the marketplace? Uh, at the beginning, it was silent, to be honest. Uh, we were scared. <laughs> we were like, man, the, the PDF, the memorandum document was, I mean, it's really, really good. Um, I'm not sure if Attila had, had received some offers or, or, or some LOIs, but he didn't share with us for two or three weeks. We had no, I mean, he was in touch with us saying, well, he contacted his network. Uh, but after, you know, I think when you're ready to sell, you're ready to sell and you expect, you know, some fast reply because you're like, my business is strong and it's good and you should buy it. But, you know, that's not what happened. Um, and uh, beginning of August, we received three LOIs you know, from three different companies. Hmm. And what would you so that was to those? The first one was pretty good, I would say. Uh, it was near, you know, the the ballpark number we we discussed like three times AR. Uh, I think that's Attila was pretty right, pretty accurate with with his estimate. So uh, we were kind of a bit disappointed again uh, because the reality that he told us would happen actually happened. <laughs> um, so we decided to wait and then another came and a third one came. So we got three uh, different LOIs. Yeah. And, and what was the difference in valuation between the highest and the lowest in terms of on a percentage basis? Um, the, the, the second offer that came in, I think we rejected it uh, automatically. It was, uh, I mean, it was too low. They, I think they tried to, to, you know, low, Lowball us, or I don't know how you say it in English. <laughs> yeah, 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 lowball. Yeah. <laughs> they tried to lowball us, um, and it was uh, in percentage based. It was like twenty percent less than the previous one, or something like that. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And then a yeah. third one came in, which was very similar, almost like if they would have talked to the first acquirer, <laughs> like it was almost a copy paste in terms of the numbers. Uh, so I guess they use the same metrics when they when they when, when they make offer. And when I say they, I'm talking about private equity firms because the three offers came from private equity firms, PE firms. Yeah. Mm. Got it. Got it. And and now a little bit of time has passed since this process. And I'm wondering if you think your advisor may have sort of tipped off the market requires what you'd be prepared to pay. Let me let yeah, me yeah, let me I back it up and yeah, like so so when you're selling a house, you know, two schools of thought, you can tell your broker, hey, look, I gotta get I don't want a million bucks for the house and, and I'll, you know, let's list it at right. a million two and right. you know, whatever. Uh, and then the broker has that in the back of their mind. They're like, okay, I, you know, I know what is, is their bottom line is. And they, they, they subtly kind of hint to the buyer yeah. that, Hey, if you can get your offer up to X or Y, I think we can get a deal done. Do you think in, in retrospect, a little bit of water under the bridge that was happening, that he may have been sort of tipping the buyer. Right, right, right. This is kind of the number you need to come to. Yeah, that that actually crossed our mind, Bogdan and I, because he was paying up based on a success fee. So if he's not selling, he's not paid. So we didn't know what was happening under the curtain. Like, uh, you know, what is he saying? Actually, at, at you know, after a few days, I, I was like. You know, I'm curious. This is my business. Uh, you know, it's my opinion. It's my. I mean, I, I think I should know what is the pricing. Are you asking for? And he didn't price it. So I was like, "Wow!" So we're selling the business at no price. He said, "No, I'm going to wait for the market or for the potential acquirer to give them to get to, for us to give to, to for them sorry to give us a price." And I was I was surprised. I was actually shocked by that. <laughs> I didn't expect that. Like seven. interesting, yeah. Interesting. So there was no so pricing. Was letting, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So he was letting the market. Um, yeah. But you had a hunch that maybe he was tipping off the buyers. Well, I, you know, I think. You know, I, I, I thought like I think every human has a good faith. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I believe to that truly. Uh, so I was giving him the benefit, the benefit of the doubt. Uh, so. So yeah, we were kind of disappointed by the offer, but on the other end, we had three offers. So I asked him, "Can you try to you know pump up a bit the pricing and you know make kind of a bidding war?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, he actually did. He actually did. And I mean, he paid himself, you know, you know, by himself just by the increase of of, of the pricing he came he came down with. Yeah. That's fantastic. So he was able to raise the price enough to warrant his fee. Yeah, it, I mean, to be honest, it was, I think, I'm not sure if, if it was the first time that it happened for him. He has a lot of experience, but he told me, you usually don't see that. So what happened is that we didn't get the pricing based on the profit margin we had, but we sold because it was a really profitable business. Because, so let me recap because I'm not sure I'm clear. So the pricing, the offer we got was based on the revenue and the growth and the story and everything. But we would not have sold with this giving market and condition if it was not as profitable as it was. Because, you know, the investors of the private equity firms and everything, they, they saw that they would recoup their money faster than if it was not profitable and other reasons for that. So at the end of the day, the fact that we had like 80 
plus percent profit margin, it helped us to actually close the sale. So that I was really, I, I was really glad about it. And this is what it took to actually make the big bidding war, seeing like, okay, let's say you pay three or four times the profit, it's actually paying, uh, not three or four times the revenue, it's actually paying them for their profits. So can you increase and make a better offer? Because we, you know, meanwhile, we got a better offer. Like the first offer that came in, which was rejected automatically with a polite reply by Attila saying, well, thank you, blah, 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 blah. They came down, they came back with a 50% increase on their first offer. Almost hmm. a 50% increase. Yeah. Five zero. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like 40% or something, but I, you know, so. Significant. Yeah. Significant. And, you know, to a point that we were like, okay, you know, money is not everything in the deal. The terms and the feeling and, the, you know, the gut feeling that we got when we, we were discussing during calls with them. Um, but at the end of the day, the amount is so great, we have to take this offer. But we didn't take this offer. <laughs> so that's, that's, the, that's the cool part. So we were. Which one did you take? Yeah, we were about to close with this. I, I don't think I'm allowed to pronounce, uh, to, to, to say the names uh, out loud. Um, but we were about to take this offer, which was an increase of 40 to 50% from the prior offer, like a, a few weeks before. I think that was like end of August. Yeah, it was end of August. Uh, because Bogdan was with me in Montreal, so I remembered the dates. Um, and then I told Attila, Attila, we really liked, we really had a good feeling with this other company. Can you tell them, like, and it was not his idea. I mean, he was not sure about it. I say, let's be transparent. Tell them this is the offer we got. No bullshit. Tell him the, the amount. Tell him we're about to sign with them because we have a deadline. It was on a Sunday. It was like a Sunday noon. We have to sign, otherwise the offer is not there. So it was like in a movie. That's why I said, I don't think he ever lived that. He said he, he, he didn't. So, and then he came back on a Saturday night to the other company and he told them the truth. And they spent the whole night trying to figure out a new offer. But they wanted, because it was the weekend, they, they, they were not you know, in a place or they were not able to go to their board to their investor to ask for more money so they went up to the limit where the board would accept so that's what they told us maybe it's bullshit but anyway we were kind of glad that they spent an overnight because we felt they wanted us we had a really good connection uh i think this is the niche that they were targeting like specific sales promotion marketing within shopify and they made an offer that was better than the other offer that we were about to to take yeah and and this company we can name is Stay Tuned Digital, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is a public got information. It. And they're a, they've got a number of different apps in the Shopify marketplace. There's Shopify platform shop, so they yeah had a lot I, of strategic synergies. I think they have nine at the moment we're recording this. They have nine apps. Gosh, got it, got it. What was the reaction to the company that came up 40% to find out that you'd gone with Stay Tuned Digital? I, I, I don't know because I didn't talk to them, but uh, Attila from Ira Capital, he told me that he was like, well, it's part of the game. Uh, it's fine. I mean, if they have this offer, it's, it's really great for them. And Attila was like, you should really take this offer because it's a really good offer giving the market the conditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I know we have to be a bit careful about the terms, but if you look at all three offers, um, 
just describe maybe how they treated the terms? Like, was it a hundred percent cash or, or when you think about the three offers yeah, yeah. in aggregate, did, did they have a portion cash and a portion sort of on an earnout? Like how did they sort of treat that, the, the deal terms? Yeah, I would say um, they were either like uh, two thirds upfront and one third uh, after a year or after six months. I mean, the terms of uh, how, how long we stay with them, it was kind of a bit different, but the logic and the structure was all of the same because they want to de-risk their investment. They want you to stay there uh, for at least four to six months for knowledge transfer and you know stuff like that. So yeah, yeah it was like either two thirds, one third, three quarter, one quarter, uh, or it was uh, more than that upfront at, at closing and, and less uh, and less uh, after a few months. Yeah. And the variable piece, the piece that would come after one year, was that contingent on just staying at the company as an employee, or did you have to meet certain sales targets in order to achieve the, that? Yeah, that extra third or whatever. Yeah, that's a good question. I was actually curious of what would be, you know, the contingent of, of uh, one of them was uh, just, um, you know, you stay and that's pretty much it. Uh, the other two is as uh, one of them was more uh, based on the growth of the company. So it was like uh, on a scale, if you make like 20% growth, we're paying this. If we make uh, zero, we're paying that or nothing. Uh, if you, but they were, it was capped to a maximum amount. Um, and then the last offer was uh, based on, okay, you need to provide this. For example, you need to improve the number of automated tests or unit testing that you have up to like 75, 80% uh, of, of the coverage of all the code. Uh, and you can stay or you can leave after this is done. Like if, if you, Interesting. yeah, yeah. So they, they, so they were different, yeah. Yeah, so one had the variable piece contingent on on achieving certain improvements to the product, another sales targets, and then a third simply just staying employed. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, isn't yeah. that interesting? Yeah, yeah. It, it was really different. Uh, but the, the offer that we uh, actually accepted was more like um, we actually told them, okay, so let's say I think it was like four to six months that they asked us to stay. We told them we we're going to stay a year. And we're like, why? Why are you staying longer? We're gonna stay a year, but we want a bit more, more incentive, like financially speaking, and we're gonna help you doing this and this and that. So they were really pleased because we were giving. I think we were giving them more if you compare the risk that they were taking, like the money they were spending, versus the money they were they were giving us. You know, more because for them, let's say you're a private equity firm, if you you know throw in a few extra hundred dollars. $100,000, sorry, it's not the end of the world. I mean, it's actually a detail, but for us, like a broke guy from Bucharest, Romania and a broke guy from Montreal, I mean, a few hundred thousand, it's, it's, it's you know, it's life-changing, right? So that's- Good deal, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Hey, are you up for a quick uh, lightning round of questions before I let you go? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Okay, what is the slimiest trick an acquirer tried to play on you in trying to acquire your business? Um, I would say the first offer with the lowballing, uh, yeah. I mean, without broker, maybe we would have uh, taken it. I don't know. I don't know. Because if it's the only offer and we're really willing to sell, I mean, well, if it's worth what they say it's worth, let's take it. 
What was the biggest mistake you made personally in the process of selling your company? That's a good question. I think I made a lot of mistakes. Uh, well, overall in the business, <laughs> but in the selling the business itself, I think the biggest mistake. Um, well, that's a really good question. I think it was to sell too late. Yeah, I would. I, I should. We should have sold earlier, like when the valuation was higher. But at the same time, we were not ready. Uh, I mean, the company was not ready. I, I, I think I made my move to buy back the shares of Hugo too late. Um, I should have, you know. When I got my second kid, this is when I realized, well, I need to have a legacy for them. I need to actually work less. My first kid, when I got the kid, the first kid in uh, like 2017, this is when I decided to focus on the product and build and stuff and because I knew my, 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 my wife was pregnant. When I got the second kid, uh, this is what, you know, tipped me and said, okay, I need to buy you go. I mean, it was clearer now. I have less time. My wife, I mean, she's works a lot. She owns four pharmacies. So, <laughs> so she works a lot and I had a very little time. Uh, and I, I like my work time was like 15 hours per week maximum, I would say. So I waited too long. I think that's long, 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 long story short. I think I, I should have, we should have sold it earlier. Yeah. I've heard selling a business described as a, kind of an emotional roller coaster. What was the lowest emotional point you reached in the process of selling your company? Uh, yeah, we, we reach a lot of highs and lows. Um, I would say waiting for the offers. Like when you, you're so excited about the document, you send it to, and you have no control. I mean, you need to, to remember that when you hire a broker, it's not you who's in contact of the people. So, uh, I was really, uh, anxious about like having some news. Yeah, that was really hard for me to, to mm. sleep. Yeah. What was the highest point emotionally in the process? The highest point, I think the excitement of the bidding war when, you know, the Saturday overnight stuff, you know, Sunday. And then we actually on Sunday, we spoke uh, on a call with Stay Tuned. Uh, Serge, the CEO, was uh, in a cabin in the New York. Or, I don't know where. He, he barely had internet. And it was like, really exciting for us. And we actually played it like we played it like if we would not accept this offer, we were like, well, you know, not sure how to tell you this. We had all our offers and <laughs> and then <laughs> it was, we're like, well, we decided to accept and he screamed at it. I think this point was, uh, yeah, this point was the, you know, the event that was uh, the excitement peak. That's awesome. That's awesome. What did you, what did you read? What did you consume to get yourself, uh, educated about the process of selling your business? Uh, I, I've read and I still read a lot of books, uh, yours included. Uh, I still have one that I started called X, this one <laughs> that I have next to me. Um, uh, it's called, so, so read that at, read, for folks who are not yeah, yeah, watching the, the video. Strategy Playbook from Adam Coffey. I've read uh, Bo Cunningham, uh, like um, I think it's called uh, X. Sit big or something like that. Finish yeah, big. Yeah. Bo Burlingham. We'll yeah, put yeah. that in the show notes as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one, I actually have it. If people, are. Um, I, I'm, I'm a big reader. I'm, a, I actually like to read and, and write. Uh, 
I made a bet with my friend uh, like that I would read one book per week. I failed, so I, I have to pay him a dinner now, but uh, I almost <laughs> reached it. <laughs> at least half of it. But yeah, anyway, I like to read a lot of stuff, including how to sell the business run it. Nice. What trophy did you buy yourself to uh, commemorate the win? Nothing yet. Nothing yet. It's, it's, a, it's a bad answer. <laughs> I'm not uh, into material, like I'm not a materialistic guy, especially when you have young kids. Uh, as soon as you buy, let's say I would buy an expensive car. My friend bought an expensive car and um, is a boy, like a three or four year old boy. He took a rock and draw on the car. So I don't want that. Even my like my couch is so used by my cats. I mean, it's, it's terrible. We're <laughs> so I, I don't want my... I, I don't know. Uh, we went to Vegas with you know a few friends. Uh, yeah, we went to Vegas uh, the day we were expecting to have the money, but then you know it took two months later to actually close the deals. <laughs> so it took two months. So I was I was in Vegas like pretending that I had money, but I was <laughs> super. Broke. How much did you lose that weekend? <laughs> um, I would say a few hundred bucks. Yeah. Oh, okay. Not, well, nothing too I, major. I, yeah, the, the last day I played the roulette and I was really, really lucky. So, you know, I saved the day. I saved the weekend. <laughs> How would you describe the emotional dividend, the emotional payoff, or the psychological payoff of selling your business? If it wasn't a material thing, there must have been some sort of psychological payoff to having the money in the bank. Yeah, I, I would say prior to having the money in the bank, just closing, just signing the document. Uh, I think it's maybe a cliche, but the peace of mind, like the stress, uh, the level of stress, especially when you're selling. And because, you know, the people that are in this situation or that, that will be in this situation, you need to sell the business, but you also need to run it. Because as soon as the growth slow down or anything, they can say, oh, no, I'm out of the deal or, oh, I'm, I'm going to give you less. So you have two jobs and I also have two kids to, you know, to manage. Uh, so the level of stress and the peace of mind, that's, that's, that was the biggest gain for me. And now that, yeah. Let me push a little further on that, on that, because you shared that your wife owns four pharmacies. Right. So, you know, my mind goes to, well, that's a fairly lucrative job and <laughs> right. those businesses will be worth something. And so why was it important to you to have this win for yourself, given that your wife, presumably your spouse, also has lots of income or the potential for lots of income? Well, she told me if you don't make $2 million, I'm going to leave you. No, no, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> no, 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 I'm kidding. Uh, well, I, I always like to you know, the business for me is kind of a game. Um, I also I also feel like all the literature, all the movies and everything, all the social media, they, they share stories of people that are really successful. We, you never hear anything about kids, about family. It's usually one or the other, like black or white. I wanted maybe to prove myself that I could be a, a good dad, a prison dad. Um, I think I am. Uh, because my kids never went to daycare, <laughs> so so that's another. I, I'm really glad they started school. At least the <laughs> the oldest one. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to be able to be success successful in business, uh, to actually build and sell a business, and to also be a pretty good dad uh, with all humility. Uh, yeah. 
Well, it sounds like you're hitting it out of the park on both levels. So congratulations on, on both. Thank you personal and and the uh, the business success if folks want to reach out and and say hi on social media what's the best place to do that are you more of a, a linkedin guy or what's twitter what's your preference i'm not super present but i had to update my linkedin uh so it's slash derek morin t-e-r-e-k-m-o-r-i-n i think you can uh put it uh, in the notes or yeah on linkedin I, i'll try to be more present but i when we launched the business, I stopped. I actually deleted Facebook, like on my phone and uh, Twitter as well. Uh, I, I re-signed up to Twitter when I knew Elon Musk was <laughs> was running the show now because <laughs> I like the guy. But uh, I'm not a big social media present. Uh, I mean, people that call me or, or text me, I, I'll I'll respond. But you know, if you contact me on Instagram or Facebook, I'm not gonna be super okay. super responsive. We'll put your LinkedIn um, yeah, sure. profile in the show yeah. notes at buildsells.com. Uh, this was super fun, Derek. Thank you for doing it. Well, thanks to you, John. And uh, keep you know writing good books and running great businesses. I can't promise you that. But <laughs> it was good to meet you and good well, to have you. Okay. <laughs> and there you have it for today's episode between Derek Morin and John. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you did, be sure you hit that subscribe button. If you love today's episode and want to help support the show, then I would encourage you to head over to Apple Podcasts, where there you have the chance to leave a rating and review. It truly does help the show grow. Thank you to today's sponsor. Again, Scribe Media. Be sure you head over to scribemedia.com and book your free consult today. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including Derek's book and a link to Scribe Media, be sure you head over to the episode page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. If you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, you can actually nominate them. By heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate, there you'll have the chance to either nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. We'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.